Hello. Hello. I am Kenna. I'm Koal. And welcome back to another episode of Diagnosing a Killer. Are you not going to do it with me? <laughs> I was waiting for you to join I feel like in. I always say it with you, so I wanted to see what happened if I didn't say it. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> what? Welcome to Diagnosing a Killer. I smell like coffee. Sorry, I'm going to be like breathing into your own mouth. <laughs> That's kind of weird. But <laughs> uh, we are back this week. I have a very special new case for everybody. I'm really excited. I know I... that you're excited to talk about it. It's one that I didn't know. And I was like, <gasps> no, like every th- everything I read, I was <laughs> every like, every no twist, way. every turn. And the cool thing about it is that the amount of information I found is like remarkable. There's a lot. Not only is there a lot of information on the crimes, there's a lot of quotes from the killer that I included in here because I think it's very important to see his mindset about the whole things, especially yeah. after the fact. So we're going to talk about that. That's, that that's being said, with the amount of detail, this is going to be a two-parter. Ooh, so <laughs> we're saucy. gonna do. All right, I haven't one. done a two-parter in a while. Yeah, we're gonna do part one today, and then probably next week we'll release part two. Okay. Do you have any um, business we need to talk about? I don't think so. Right? I don't really we, think so. Everything's. Just, I mean, been just going living good. life. Yeah. Christmas was good. I'm oh. Excited for New Year's. Oh my gosh, I'm not. <laughs> a lot of life changes that have been happening. Yeah, I work a double on Friday, and then I'm off for New Year's Day, and then I work a double on Sunday. Ew. So I'm gonna have not a very fun New Year's, I guess. I don't know. I was gonna say, so you work a double bef- the day before New Year's Eve, and then you're off New Year's Eve, but then you work a double on New Year's Day. No, I work a double on New Year's Eve. I'm off on New Year's Day, and then I work a double the next day. The oh, yeah. I see. But still, well, at least you have New Year's Day off. You yeah. can go out and have some fun. That's after true. You get out of work. Yeah. I don't know what's going to be open, but... I don't know. That's true. I want to go to the ranch, but it's far. And I don't yeah. think I'm going to want to drive all the way up there on New Year's Eve after work. After work, yeah. yeah. Oh, well. No one cares about my plans, so <laughs> we're going to get into the case. <laughs> what are you doing for New Year's Eve, guys? Yeah. Tell us. <laughs> Email us. So, I researched this week for my Tupata... A British case. Oh, okay. So this is uh, set in the UK. Okay. Uh, that being said, there are some names in here that I might butcher, so please <laughs> let me know if I'm saying anything incorrectly. If, you know, if I do something, say something incorrectly, I have no problem with you correcting me or listeners. But we're going to get right on into it. Who is it? We're going to be talking about Alexander Lewis Ranwell. Alexander Lewis Ranwell? No. <laughs> You do that all the time when you have a case and you say the name and then you're like, no, no. <laughs> is that, you know, does you know who bell? that is? Any bells ringing? Any bells? What was his name? Alexander, Alexander Lewis Ranwell. He has a hyphenated Ranwell. last name. Is he the guy that, um, that he, uh, lured young men and killed them in a graveyard? Nope. Oh, okay. I really hope you don't know this case. Because <laughs> every time you end up knowing it, like halfway through, you're like, <gasps> oh my this God. Case. Alexander Lewis Renwell was born on March 17th, 1991 in Guildford, England. Oh, he's a baby. I couldn't find the name of his father anywhere. I looked for a while, uh, but I did find the name of his mom. That is Jill Lewis Renwell. Her name is also hyphenated. 
Um, what happened to his dad? His dad, there, nothing happened to him. I just couldn't find the name of him. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, so he grew up in a relatively wealthy middle class home. Uh, his mom worked as an IT project manager, and his dad was a retired insurance worker. Hmm. So both, you know, good, good yeah. living, good jobs. Um, as a child, he attended Seven Oaks Preparatory School. This is a co-educational school, only of about, like, 400 kids from the ages 2 to 13. All oh, in wow. the same so school. Like, yeah. Yeah. Um, and in the year 2000, he ended up moving schools to Sutton Valence School, another co-educational, uh, but this was a boarding school. This was located in Maidstone and uh, educated kids from nursery age to sixth form or sixth grade, as we call it here. So he so just he moved was... schools. Okay. From the ages of 2 to 13, he just moved schools, but they're pretty similar. But a boarding school, I feel like, I mean, when you hear things like that in the U.S., it's usually because you're a bad kid. Yeah. I don't think it was anything like that. I think maybe work, maybe took mom somewhere and then the family moved or something. I don't think it was anything yeah. negative. It wasn't anything of note yeah. anywhere? Okay. No. Uh, now, two years later, in 2002, he left yet again. It didn't say where. I think when it says he left, he just moved schools again. So mm-hmm. I guess he was he was bounced around from school to school when he okay. was growing up. At the age of 13, his family moved to Devon, England. This okay. is in the southwest part of the country. Mm-hmm. And here, he was privately educated at 30,000 pounds a year, which re- uh, it translates to roughly like 40,000 US dollars oh, okay. a year for a 13-year-old. That's ridiculous. That's a lot of money. <laughs> like, that's I ridiculous. spent less than that on college. And he's an only child, I guess. No, they, I didn't see anything about, about siblings. Any I think siblings, he is an, maybe only, he's an child. only child. And then, yeah. And clearly his parents have nice jobs. So. Yeah. Uh, the school he attended here was called West Buckland. This is in Devon. At this school, he developed a passion for playing polo. And he really wanted to change his name and wanted to go by the nickname Albie. So his name's Alexander, but he wanted to be called Albie. Albie. Yeah. Why? Because it sounds more exotic. I guess. I'm going to refer to him as Alexander, <laughs> but this is just a note. We're not going to give him that. Yeah. We're just going to say his name's Alexander. Yeah. <laughs> um, he's actually really smart. He went on to gain 11 GCSEs, which are General Certificate of Secondary Educations, hmm. uh, which included... 11? Yeah, which included six, uh, seventh grade, although he was only in sixth. So he was up... He was above his classmates as far as, um, like, educational So would that be knowledge. considered, like, uh... Like, GT like or... Like, yeah. yeah. like, he probably yeah. could have skipped a grade if he wanted to. Hmm. Um, however, he ended up dropping out of school in sixth form, which, again, sixth grade, saying that studies were, quote, pointless, and he ended up becoming what they noted as a casual worker. Probably, like, blue-collar jobs, you know, that's probably what that yeah. means. Um, during this time, from age 13 on... He worked a number of jobs. I'm just going to mention them here. We'll talk about them as they happen, but this was just noted. Uh, he worked, uh, they said they named them petty jobs, including uh, working in a factory. He worked as a fencing contractor at one point. He even traveled to Australia and New Zealand for work. Uh, he was also a scaffolder in London for a short period so he was of time. A laborer. Yeah, and he even worked at a, uh, in France at a ski and snowboarding resort. Okay. So, yeah, like he really kind of jack of all trades here. Yeah. He was still very much into sports. Like I said, uh, he liked polo a lot, but during his childhood into early adulthood, he was noted as enjoying playing rugby, polo, surfing, skateboarding, and skiing. Just an active dude. Yeah. And a former friend who actually asked not to be named even claimed that Alexander, quote, liked living in a tent and loved to go surfing and skating. So he was kind of just like a free spirit kind of, I'll just do whatever I want. You know, screw school. I don't want to do that. Just a rugged dude. Yeah. And the same friend was also noted as saying that, quote, he was the most laid back, hippie, sporty, surfer, skateboarder type you could ever imagine. 
just seems like a 70s dude, yeah, you know, just, even though he was like born a, in the 90s. Yeah, he just, yeah, just living life. Yeah. Just seems like he's going out there living life and, like, experiencing all life has to offer. Exactly. And, like, that's and really why, cool. why shouldn't you, right? Yeah. So notably, it seemed to be pretty clear that he didn't have any uh, mental health issues as a child. Yeah. You know, nothing out of the ordinary. Mm-hmm. In fact, nothing but ordinary, you know, yeah. except for the dropping out of school part. But he had a little reason behind that, I guess, right. in his mind. Um, There was, like, not a lot mentioned about his life from the years 2002 to 2014. Um, I think that he just did this, what I was talking about. You yeah. know, he just kind of did his own thing. He worked a bunch of different jobs. Um, but around 2014, he was noted as living in France... And living with and dating a woman named Charlotte. I was going to say, any girlfriends? Yeah. I mean, he so, seems like a pretty adventurous dude. So he's about 23 at this time, living in France and dating this this Charlotte. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 2016, at the age of 25, he's noted to be in a different relationship. Hmm. This time, a woman in her 60s named Dulcie. Okay. And he's 25. It's a little time. Harold and Maude of you. A little different than, you know, <laughs> Char- they didn't mention how old Charlotte was, but... She wasn't 60. But she wasn't 60. It was notable that this woman was 60. Yeah. It wasn't notable how old the other one was, because mm-hmm. it was probably around his age. Yeah. <laughs> so around this time, when he's about 25, he began to show signs of severe mental illness. Severe? Now, let me ask you, what types of mental illness typically don't present themselves until the early 20s? Schizophrenia. There you go. He was sectioned under the Mental Health Act of 1983 at this time. And I'll explain what that means. Uh, This act states that somebody that is severely mentally ill can be taken into a mental hospital and held without their consent for a period of time if they're thought to be in danger or a threat to others. Okay. So this act is also put uh, put in place. It covers the cost of this mental health visit, which is awesome. And they also uh, cover the cost to make arrangements for maybe outside things that this person is responsible for. If they have pets or if they have a job, Mm -hmm. like they take care of all of that for you. In the UK or just Great Britain? In the UK, yes. Okay, okay. So he would eventually be released from this care, um, but he would quickly find himself with a second admission to a psychiatric unit. Wow. I'll come back to that in just a minute, but there are things that happen in between these two visits. So I, by... I'm sorry. I just think that's really incredible about that that act. Yeah. And it's the act of... It's called the uh, Mental Health Act of 1983. 1983. And it's still in effect. 1983. Yeah. And we can't even get a single law made. Oh, and we can't get mental health treatment for free. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, It's ridiculous. That's incredible, though. I'm good for good for them. Of course. I mean, they're definitely progressing. (laughs) They're also hundreds of years older than our our country. So that's true. (laughs) They have the experience. Um, So by 2017, he is now 26 years old. He was noted as being in a different relationship with another woman in her 40s called Mm. Meryl. Not that he was in two at the same time, but he is now out of the relationship with the 60-year-old and in a new one okay. with the 40-year-old. With Meryl. Yes. Meryl. Meryl. It was also around this time that he was admitted to a psychiatric unit for the second time, like I said. So about a year later. This time, he was admitted in Weston Super Mare. It's another town in England. Mm-hmm. And again, he was released. Okay. I read somewhere that he was prescribed medication. I was unable to find what medication he was prescribed, but it seems as though this visit helped him get on the medication that would help him. Okay. Um, Still no diagnosis that's noted, um, but spoiler alert, he is diagnosed as paranoid schizophrenic later on in life. And that's because of the time. That's not my, you know, the the language. Now it's a schizophrenic schizophrenic spectrum. Mm -hmm. So in the summer of 2018, he returned to England from a stay in France 
And he was living with Meryl, the same lady, in London, and this is when he was working as a scaffolder. Okay. At this point in his life, he was said to be making pretty good money. Doctors even noted at this time that his mental health seemed to be decent. However, as they do in cases like this, things took a considerable turn for the worse, and by the end of 2018, he found himself single, homeless, and broke. Ugh. So, I mean, I know that that's part of the schizophrenia spectrum, too, is, like, when you have stability and you have routine and you have, you know, these certain things put into place that it can help, you know, uh, kind of not control it, but kind of help keep it maintain it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, um, yeah, that, that's really, I mean, you see a lot of transient people that are on the streets that have schizophrenia. Yeah. And they don't have any structure. They, yeah. You know, they have to survive. and. Yeah. It just exacerbates that their it deteriorates their yeah. mental state. Of course, and then also uh, we see this a lot, especially in cases with schizophrenia spectrum. People that take the medication for it realize, oh my gosh, I'm doing so much better. I don't need the medication anymore. So they either don't take it as often, or they kind of try to wean themselves off of it. And right. then, sure enough, like you and I know, and most of the listeners, hopefully, you that's something that you need to be on for the rest of your life. There's no way to cure this disorder. It's Take the medication and you can manage it. If you don't mm -hmm. take the medication, this is what happens, right. you know? And unfortunately, that is what happened. He he seems like he started to become a little more lenient with his medication, mm -hmm. and it definitely took a turn for the worse. Yeah. Now, by January of 2019, he was living at a campsite in Croyd, North Devon, so again, southwest England, and had seized all medication intake. This oh. is when it's noted that he was no longer taking meds. Oh, Probably guy. because he was no longer picking them up from the, you know, pharmacy. Well, yeah. Or... I mean, how do you get around? How do you, you yeah. know, how do you know what time it is? Exactly. During this time, it was noted that this is when his mental health took a terrible t turn for the worse. And he was, this is important. I'm going to mention this and then I'm going to come back to it. So he was noted at some point as pointing out a woman in a magazine who had been kidnapped, but he was, his delusions had convinced him that this woman was Charlotte, his ex-girlfriend. On the magazine, it said that the woman had been missing for 24 years. Okay. He believed that it was Charlotte. But remember, they just dated a few years prior. Yeah. So this really shows how detached he is from reality. Mm -hmm. uh, he began to believe that she was the victim of a pedophile ring and was being held hostage. Uh, these delusions very quickly overtook his mind. And he had become convinced that she was being held hostage in the basement of a specific house on Bonnet Road. Okay. I'm going to come back to that, but just keep that in your mind. On Thursday, February 7th, 2019, Alexander went to Lee Meadow Farm in Ilfracombe, Devon, and while there, he stole a bicycle and a drill. Okay. Later that night, he was seen in a pub and was noted as acting aggressively towards the patrons inside. Um, without having anything to arrest him for, police were called, but they couldn't, of course, take him into custody, so they spoke with him that night and simply offered him a ride. They didn't which... have proof of him stealing the bike and the drill? No. He, they had gotten called to the pub where he was just acting a little aggressive, Strange. but oh, he wasn't, okay. he wasn't abusing, physically harming her. Yeah, they were just like, move on. They didn't know about the, yeah, the bicycle yeah. and the drill. They offered him a ride, uh, to which he refused. So that was the first time that he was kind of involved with police. Mm hmm the next morning, by the way, this escalates very quickly. Just okay. to let you know. <laughs> and then he was addicted to porn. Like, <laughs> yeah, right. With what's his name? Was Grant. <laughs> um, 
The next morning, February 8th, 2019, Alexander was arrested after being caught letting animals out of a nearby farm on purpose. So he had let the, I think it was a pony. He had let someone's pony out, like, clearly on purpose. Mm -hmm. While in custody, police noted that he was behaving bizarrely, but he declined mental health treatment. He was adamant about about the fact that he was not a threat to himself or to others. Mm. Although, police knew that he had been sectioned twice for psychosis, as it read in the detention log that was taken. Mm -hmm. So they take a detention log every time, of course, when they arrest somebody, detain them. They knew that that, he had been treated, or at least sectioned before for this. for mental stuff. During the same visit, a nurse was noted as concluding, quote, I was unable to identify evidence that he lacked mental capacity. Okay. okay. So they're not thinking that he's mentally ill. Mm-hmm. Or at least not mentally ill enough. To I where, guess. yeah, to where he's going to hurt someone or, so- yeah. or himself. Uh, later on, and this is just relative to this uh, visit to the police station, a few months later, he had actually admitted to having been smoking weed since he was 18 and occasionally taking mushrooms and doing cocaine. But, of course, he recognized that they were all negatively affecting his mental health. So apparently he ceased use, but he had... When talking about this visit, he had mentioned that later. Yeah, he said that he had dabbled in drugs, but he knew it wasn't healthy for him yeah. mentally, so yes. he stopped doing it. Mm-hmm. But he didn't tell the police seems during like the he, time. I mean, it seems like he has a pretty good understanding of what's going on mentally. Mm-hmm. But it also seems like he has a pretty good understanding of what will get him out of treatment. Yeah. Exactly. While he was still detained, again, this is his first arrest, his mother, Jill, actually called the police station and asked them if they could keep him detained because, one, he was severely mentally ill, and two, he had nowhere else to go because he was living on the street. Having their hands tied, the police charged Alexander with burglary and causing damage to the cell that he had been kept in, but he was released. In the early hours of February 9th, the next morning, and taken to a homeless shelter called the Freedom Center. Okay. Okay, so... They charged him with burglary, causing damage, but they couldn't hold him. Let him okay. go. They just yeah. gave him, like, a, a little ticket. Like a slap on like, the wrist, yeah. All right, have a nice day. So they dropped him off at the Freedom Center, where he had agreed to spend the night there. But he ended up leaving just two and a half hours later. Um, manager Andrew Gammon talked to Alexander, who said he would now like to be known as Albie. Remember I told you earlier Albie. he wanted to be known as Albie. Um, he completed the forms to stay the night, but he wouldn't go to sleep. And instead, he was noted as using the computer to access Facebook and then chatting with Andrew in his office. You know, just for the first part that he was there. Okay. Shortly after the police left, however, he began behaving erratically. It's almost like he can turn it off when he's in police line of sight and then when they leave, it doesn't matter, you know? I wonder if there's like a a recognition in his brain for authority. Oh, I'm sure there is. And that, but that's what's interesting about it is that it's kind of, like you said, it's almost like you can turn it on and off, which, of course, we're not saying you can turn on and off yeah, your, of course. your um, disorders, especially um, schizophrenia, but his brain somehow recognizes... It's interesting. I'm in, a, I'm in a position to where, like, I have to listen to this authority figure and yeah. pay attention, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, your brain's like, pay attention, pay attention. Yeah, And then when you don't have that anymore, then it's like, oh, okay, go ahead, you know? It seems like do, it's almost... Yeah. Uh, subconscious like he's not even trying to act differently in front of them but he he is right yeah exactly that's very interesting so he's still at the homeless shelter um this is when he began behaving erratically after the police left and he was noted as spitting and at newspapers 
talking about getting a gun and threatening to kill the staff members on duty at the time. Okay, see, that's when you need to call again exactly. and say, okay, well, this is happening now. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't happening earlier, now it's happening. Yeah, uh, he even told the manager that he could get a gun, saying he could lay his hands on a 410 shotgun. I'm not sure what kind of, I mean, obviously a shotgun, but... 410 shotgun I've never heard of. I don't know what a 410 shotgun is. Um, pretty much he was, like, explaining how he could uh, how he could get a hold of this gun. Mm-hmm. The manager was later noted as saying, quote, he threatened to kill me and threatened to kill my cats, even though I don't have cats. <laughs> Sorry, that quote's just kind of funny. <laughs> and your little dog, too. <laughs> like, like, pretty much, yeah. you know. Um, at this time, Alexander picked up his belongings and just left. Mm-hmm. Now, just seven hours later, after this whole incident, Alexander made his way to Silver Spring Farm in Goodley, only two miles away, where he was spotted by the woman of the farm, uh, wife of John Ellis. I didn't get her name, but John Ellis and his wife lived at this farm. And he was spotted by the wife letting their alpacas out of the gate. You know, his M.O. He just loves it. He's just a freedom fighter. Yeah, I love it. Um, She told her husband, John, what was happening, and John came out to approach Alexander, of course. Uh, Alexander was holding a four-foot double handsaw in one hand and a wooden pole in the other, Mr. Ellis noted. Once uh, John Ellis got close enough, Alexander began swinging both weapons at him, attempting to wound or kill him. Wow. Mr. Ellis ran back towards the house, but as he did, he was hit with the flat side of the saw on the back, on his back, and he was later noted as saying, he was right behind me, that's a quote, Uh, Mr. Ellis got behind a gate and tried to shut it behind him. At this point, Alexander jabbed Mr. Ellis in the chest with this wooden stick. The stick broke as uh, Mr. Ellis grabbed, like, the larger Mm -hmm. end. He managed to fight Alexander off until the saw handle broke, and then he backed away. Mm -hmm. At this point, it seemed as though Mr. Ellis was out of danger, but not without suffering a really bad cut on his arm from the Mm -hmm. saw. So he was fine. Alexander pretty much backed off at that point, but Mr. Ellis was clearly wounded. So now he's actively being violent towards people. Yes. I do have a couple of quotes about what happened from John Ellis's standpoint. Standpoint? Point of view. Yeah. So I do have a couple of quotes that John Ellis was later noted as saying. Uh, He said, quote, I saw him holding a saw and he started to approach me. He was verbally abusing both my wife and I. I can't remember what he said because I was aware he was holding the saw coming towards me and swinging it. I told my wife to phone the police now and she ran back. The male was swinging the saw around as I was backing away. He also stated, quote, he got very close to the point where the saw was head height. I saw the blade coming towards me and I thought, this isn't good. I instinctively put my hand up as I thought he was going to have my head or cut my throat. Lastly, John Ellis was noted as saying, quote, he asked me if I was a pedophile. He seemed quite well educated and seemed calm and collected. So now we're going back to the, news, the magazine cover yeah, where he noted that he thought Charlotte was taken by yeah. a pedophile ring. So it seems as though he's targeting this man because he thinks that he might be holding Charlotte Or captive. a part of the, ring, the pedophile yes. ring or whatever. That's a really scary account, though. Yeah. To know that, like, I mean, he was purposefully swinging that, trying to do damage. Yeah. It's not like he was just doing it, feeling like he was to defending himself him, yeah. or something or to scare him. Yeah. Yeah. Following this attack, Alexander was arrested yet again on assault charges. So the police had asked what hospital he had been treated at, and he said, quote, the White House hospital and whatever they want to pump fuck you with. So I pump guess like they you. like pump fuck you, like the IV maybe? They want to yeah, put like, drugs in your I system? I don't know. <laughs> they also asked if he was taking medication at the time, and he responded with, quote, I would not mind blasting a big or two, is what he said. 
<laughs> like I wouldn't, mind, I wouldn't mind taking like a big pill or two or like a big I don't know like getting high I, I guess yeah um Alexander also noted that he had made suicide t- attempts in the past but did not want to do that anymore mm-hmm. and lastly he was noted as saying that he would like to see a custody healthcare professional and a mental health liaison and diversion worker hmm. which is awesome right he's yeah taking steps to get himself some help again i feel like he's very aware of his disorder yeah and we'll see that a lot he has so many chances to get help it's almost like an andre thomas thing. yeah so essentially during this visit police main focus was to get alexander assessed by a mental health professional mm-hmm. Uh, they said that sometime during this visit, he would agree to cooperate, only to withdraw and make accusations of abuse. His mental health state had clearly deteriorated since the first arrest. At one point, he claimed that he had, quote, lost his unicorn. I don't know what that means. Maybe it's Charlotte. Maybe yeah? Charlotte's his unicorn. Maybe. I didn't even think about that. Now get this. During this same visit, Alexander was noted as acting violently and somehow, he managed to get a taser off of the belt of a nearby officer. He just snatched it right out of his freaking belt. <laughs> Thankfully, before he was able to discharge it, he was tackled and subdued. Once in his cell, he was noted as urinating on the floor, and it was at this point that they decided to call a doctor. <laughs> After all of that. They've had it. Yeah. Nothing was actually noted or written from the doctor's evaluation of him, but that afternoon... He spoke on the phone with mental health liaison and diversion for 12 whole minutes. And they assessed him? He got to talk to them for 12 whole minutes on the phone. From the call, it was reported, quote, Potential psychotic symptoms present, including paranoid beliefs, including thinking that food has been tampered with, that I had stolen his food. He believes I am stopping him from carrying out his duty of care, which is to protect all animals and sentient beings in the universe. Oh, that's it's very it's sad, but that's sad, but very it's, clearly it's schizophrenia. Yeah, I mean, it's like a sweet sentiment, but clearly, it's it's a delusion, and it's escalated yes. so hard. Now, police were noted as saying that the difficulty with this visit was getting a mental health doctor to see him in person. I don't know if there was some sort of con- conflict of interest because he was in a police station and he had been violent. The mental health professional said that they could not attend, quote, due to the time frame, which I'm not sure what that means. If maybe it was too late in the day or maybe he had not been held for a proper amount of time to be evaluated. I don't know. That's all it said. Due to the time frame. Okay. This is what tells me there's something going on here. Mm. As well as that, the on-duty approved mental health professional said they couldn't come until he had been assessed in person by someone else. But they're the mental health... They're the the approved on-duty... Mental health evaluator. Mm Mm-hmm. And they said that he needed to be evaluated by somebody else? Yes. It literally makes no sense. Like the Pope? It was almost like a... (laughs) Like the fucking Pope? I don't understand. (laughs) Honestly... He needs an exorcism first. It really honestly kind of... Seems to me as of a case of, like, not my animals, not my zoo kind of thing. Like Not turn, my circus, not my monkeys. Yeah, like, mm. kind of turn the other way and it'll go away. Yeah. Uh, so at this point, their only hope to get him examined is a forensic medical examiner that was able to get called in. Okay. This is uh, one Dr. Pichu. So Pichu spoke with Alexander in person for an entire 19 minutes. And then concluded that he did not need a full mental health assessment, 
which would have meant a transfer to the hospital. He later uh, was noted in the trial as telling the court that this was not fully his decision and it was made only after a phone consultation, which, no. <laughs> what? What is, yeah. what is going on? People Why? don't care to help him. Like That's so sad. On the basis of this crucial decision by the doctor, police decided Alexander was safe to release. Mm-hmm. To release, not even keep? Nope. Release. Oh, he's fine. Let, let him go. He's a, he's just a little crazy. Yeah. Why don't you go ahead and just let him go? Yeah. On top of this, an inspector, so a detective, reviewed his file, and all he was noted as writing was that Alexander, quote, potentially presents as a serious risk to the public if released. Wait, the, about the, uh, the, the forensic guy? Oh. No. This is a detective. This isn't even a psychiatrist or a doctor. This is the detective that's like, hey, bro, like, no, do not <laughs> release him. He could potentially cause a serious okay, threat. Okay, okay. And everyone else is like, nah, go ahead, it's fine. There's only so much that he can do, right? Because, I mean, he does yeah. his job by saying something. Yeah. And it's these other people's jobs to enact those things. Yeah, and evaluate efficiently. Additionally, John Ellis, the guy from the farm, phoned police and, similarly to Alexander's mother, asked if the police would keep him in custody because he was afraid that he would still be in danger pending Alexander's release. Mm-hmm. It's worth noting, just in case you haven't been able to keep count, during these two different periods of detainment, he was seen or at least talked to by five different mental health professionals, none of which did a full mental health assessment. Oh my god. And they all deemed him as not acutely unwell. (laughs) Not (laughs) acutely unwell. Like, that's a bunch of oxymorons. Yeah. (laughs) So He's not not. Yeah. Suffering from something. Seriously. But he's just not suffering from yeah, something. literally. <laughs> so at this point, it's like, okay, do we release him? Do we not? There's a bunch of different accounts here. It was at this time that the police decided to contact the Crown Prosecution Service. Okay. So pretty much they would make the final decision on whether or not to release him. Okay. And they contacted them about the attack on John Ellis. Mm-hmm. To which they replied, saying there was not enough evidence for Alexander to be charged with anything. Even though he cut Mr. Ellis. Mm-hmm. With a saw. Mm-hmm. With a saw. On his own property. On his property. Yeah. After letting out his animals. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Trying to and it's, spear him with a stick or and whatever. it's 2019, so there's probably cameras out there that can show you that. <laughs> CCTV everywhere. Literally. Especially in the UK. Yeah. So at 9.32 a.m. on February 10th, Alexander was released. Oh, By no. 11 a.m. on the same day. Oh, no. Determined to find and rescue charlotte he made plans to track her down remember this is going back to the magazine yeah he thinks she's been held captive for 24 years right he was convinced she's only 24 probably (laughs) sorry he was convinced that the man living in the home that he decided to travel to had captured and held charlotte hostage for the past 24 years not not john ellis different different gentleman (sighs) well don't sigh of relief just yet before taking off He was noted as visiting a local market, where he ended up having to be escorted out due to claims by Alexander that the cashier was a victim of abuse. So he saw the cashier back there, and delusions told him that she was being held hostage. Oh, no. Seems like he's such a compassionate person. Right? He really just wants to help. It's really sad. But it's delusional. So he began to make his way to Exeter. This is where um, the crimes take place. Mm -hmm. In order to get there, he hopped in a taxi driven by one Johnson Joseph for the first stretch of his journey. Okay. He offered the driver a 100 euro note, which is about like $110 okay. US dollars, 
and managed to get only about 24 miles away when the taxi driver kicked him out because he was becoming concerned about his behavior. Okay. So he had... I feel like 24 miles is still a bit of a drive. Quite a bit of a drive. Um, when he had gotten in the taxi, he actually hopped in the front seat, which is not what you do in a taxi. Maybe in an Uber, <laughs> but not in a taxi. Yeah. Uh, the taxi driver later recalled, quote, he came across as some sort of mental health patient and, quote, I just knew he was going to do harm. He made me feel very scared. Hmm. Quote, before reaching Copplestone, he asked me to turn off down a lane. I asked him why, and he said, just drive down the lane. According to the taxi driver, Alexander then grabbed some rosary beads from the mirror. I guess they were hanging on the uh, rearview mirror and started to tug at them with his uh, fist clench. So he was kind of like pulling on them, mm-hmm. kind of like tightening them. He then jumped into the back seat and sat right behind the driver. Very eerie, right? Oh my God, I know. that's so... The driver oh. said, quote, this made me feel very scared as I thought he was going to strangle me with yeah. it. Yeah. So he kicked him out of the taxi. Yeah. Taxi driver was fine. And give me my necklace. Yeah. <laughs> so no longer having access to the taxi, of course, Alexander then boarded a bus and headed the last 12 miles he had to go to Exeter. Once he reached the city, he actually got into an argument with a GWR worker, the Great Western Railway, at St. David's Station. He accused a different taxi driver of trying to abduct a woman who was getting into a taxi. Okay. When the train worker said it was very clear that the woman was fine and just a passenger, Alexander got aggressive. He told the station worker to, quote, fuck off, and then walked away. I don't know what it meant by he got aggressive, but maybe verbally aggressive. Yeah, yeah. So, everyone's fine so far. He then walked the 350 yards down Bonnet Road. Remember I told you earlier. And reached 65 Bonnet Road. This is the address. So, okay, sorry. So from the beginning, because I want to make sure that's clear in my head. From the did he know where this house was? Yes, I have no idea what how he came across it originally. I, yeah, no okay. idea how he got the address. Yeah, maybe I don't know. This okay. is just the address that he explains later. It just popped in his head, pretty much. Like, I don't know. Maybe he had been in that area before and didn't know. Or maybe he had family that. I don't know. I literally have heard about it somewhere. Yes. Okay. So as I was doing research, I came across pretty much a direct quote from him about this entire account. Okay. So I'm going to tell you what's happening, but I'm also going to explain it in his words kind of side by side. And of course, I'll say quote when it's him and I Mm -hmm. won't when it's me. Okay. So he just started walking down the road and he reached this specific address. He later said, quote, I remember thinking I was working for the police. It's really confusing. They're all linked. They're jumbled. When I left the train station, I thought the police were with me, following me. I thought the moment they knew what I was doing and that I was helping them find the girl. It's like I'm an investigator, a finder, he said. Hmm. Quote, I guess like a search dog. I was trying to find the missing girl for them. I can't remember her name, but I saw her in a magazine. So now he is not thinking it's Charlotte. Now he's worried about this girl that is actually missing that he saw in the magazine. Okay, okay. He says, quote, she'd been missing for about 25 years. I was just following my nose, following what I came across. I was on a wander. It was anything. It was sort of like the path of least resistance. I knew there would be a path that would take me there. This is the end of the quote. Okay. So when he arrived at 65 Monet Road, he was met with a note on the front door. The note explained that the man that occupied the living quarters was, in fact, an 80-year-old elderly man named Anthony Payne. Mm. So the note on the door was 
saying that, okay, so he was elderly. So is it like, because I've seen those before where they have like notes on a door that says like, knock, sh- knock very loudly or yes, things like I that. Think it is was, that what it was? I think it was something like that. It seems to me as, as if this was like a small little tight knit community and maybe it was a, you know, if there's a delivery or if like maybe something happens and police come or whatever, just so that you know what you're walking into. I or see. if someone doesn't answer you, then you know it's probably because he can't hear you or whatever. Yeah. I think it was just one of those things. Okay. You know? Now, content warning for this next part. After reaching the door, Alexander proceeded to go inside mm-hmm. and proceeded to bludgeon Anthony Payne with a hammer. What? With a hammer? Mm-hmm. Did he already have the hammer or he found a hammer? I, you know, it didn't say. I think he found the hammer inside. Okay. I don't think that he was just walking down the street with a hammer. I don't know. Alexander's personal account of this murder is as follows. Okay. Quote, I was walking down the street and I went to a house. There was a sign on the door about a man and a cat, something like that, which makes me think, pause, unquote, makes me think that maybe they were saying this man is 80 and there's also a cat in here. So maybe check on him or if he doesn't answer, like maybe check on the cat, you know, yeah. like there's a living, there's an animal in here too, just in case something happens. Well, and then, you know, but again, what if there's a fire or what if you know whatever then you know it says you know these two occupants live here exactly back to the quote i wanted to talk to the man but then i saw an outline of a dead dog on the carpet unquote this is very clearly a delusion this was not actually happening yeah you should have seen (laughs) nobody could see my eyes but i was like what (laughs) you're like they didn't talk about the dog on the note quote it looked derelict like nobody would be in It Hmm. looked like the sort of place someone could be hidden and nobody would know. Hmm. I thought the girl might be there at first. He came downstairs. He was drinking cider. I don't know why I added that in. I hit him in the head with a hammer. Quote, he had a selection of knives and scissors out in a ring. At least I remember it being a ring. I knew he was using them to torture the girl. I also saw a really old birth certificate and thought it was hers and he was keeping it as a souvenir. At this point, I didn't really ask him any questions as far as I remember. I just lashed out. I was worried about the girl being tortured when he wouldn't answer my questions. I didn't think I would kill him, and then I did. This is still a quote. I believed they were keeping people prisoner like Fred and Rose West. There's a connection between Kent and Scurry, Shipman and Gloucester, and Torquay and police in Utree. Then I left. He died. There was no arguing I didn't mean to kill him. I didn't know what I wanted. I wanted him to stop doing what he was doing to stop the abuse. Someone had taken my mobile, so I had no means to call for help, so I had to stop him. He goes on, quote, The main thing was to stop the girl being abused. That's what I was thinking about. He needed to be out of the way so I could get her. End quote. It's a long account of this one murder. So, I mean, when he talks about the cider and, like, maybe seeing, you know, a deceased dog and... I mean, clearly he was watching him. Yeah. He was watching him through a window or something. Had well, to he said he saw he all even... these things when he walked in. I guess the man had been upstairs, so when he got in, it took them oh. a little bit to come downstairs. So he's seeing all he these things. He said that he was drinking cider. The man was drinking cider. Yeah, but he, how did he, he know? he was walking downstairs. Oh, okay, Yeah. Okay. It's just, the thing is, is that he's saying all these very specific things. You can, you can almost see his mind working as yeah. he walks in, and he's noticing these little things, and he says... He was drinking cider. I don't know why I even put that in there. Yeah. And, and you can see kind of his account. And then he's like, you know, I, I knew what I was doing, but I was doing it for this reason. Yeah. That shows the delusions. The imagery know? is pretty incredible. Yeah. And for that's, someone that experienced it, came out of it. And I'm assuming by the time that he these quotes are happening that maybe he's gotten 
clarity or help mm-hmm. at that point. And but the fact that he still remembers it so vividly, yeah, is incredible because mm-hmm. his brain told him this is reality. Yeah, and it's just like. You know, like, oh, well, yesterday I went to the store and I had bloody blah for breakfast and I did it and like, that's what my brain showed me. That's what I did. And and he remembers it so clearly. It's really compelling to the disorder and how real it can be and mm-hmm. how real it can make you feel it is, you know, when yeah. you're experiencing it. And that's why I thought it was important to put all of those direct quotes in there because they really show the disorder working, yeah. you know, or working against the host. Mm-hmm. Now, after this happened... His delusions had convinced him that there were still more people involved in this, quote, pedophile ring, Mm -hmm. and he thought that there was an underground bunker that linked the next address to the cellar in which this girl was being kept. Okay. This is his delusion. Alexander's words again, quote, I checked the whole house after I killed that man, but I couldn't find anything, so I left and went around town for a bit then. Somehow I went to the other house. I walked. I don't know what led me. A feeling. I was trying to get to Halden Hill. I thought I would go to the racehorse to meet my mom. For some reason, when I get unwell, I'm attracted to horses. There's something in my subconscious. End quote. So he begins searching for this new address where he believes that these people, whoever lives in the house, is a part of this pedophile ring. Mm -hmm. Alexander walked into the city center. His route was wayward and included him stopping at the University of Exeter and St. David's Churchyard. This is important because this shows how many bypassers saw him and he had interactions with and encounters and nobody did anything to help. I'm sure if he bludgeoned Mr. Payne, he would probably have blood on him. Yeah. Wouldn't you think? Yes. So wouldn't you think that someone would call the police? Yeah. Um, So like I said, he had a number of encounters along the way with strangers. He asked a passerby called Richard McCullum for the keys to the church before following him along the road all the while trying to hide from view against walls. So he's following this man down a dark oh alley, God. and when he turns around, he hides. Like, isn't that... It's kind of scary. I'm sorry. It's kind of scary. I don't want to be like, like, be like, oh, schizophrenic people are creepy. No, of course not. But this but specific situation... That's... It's unnerving. Yeah. It's unnerving. And that would make me uncomfortable. Yes. Mr. McCollum, of course, became concerned with this behavior and sprinted off up Streetum Drive and managed to lose Alexander. <sighs> just running <laughs> keep in mind this is the middle of the day so oh I, it is because he left at 11 a.m i keep thinking it's at night a couple hours at 1 20 p.m he was seen by staff at the university pretending to be a police officer they were so concerned by his behavior that he had to be escorted from the northcott theater escorted out mm. once in town he stopped at the farmers union and made his way into northern hay gardens so he just, like, got escorted out and then just left. Like, <laughs> nice no day. one decided to, yeah. Probably just think he had too much sauce or something. Along the way to the gardens, he struck up a conversation with one Rose Poulton, who was walking with her boyfriend, Tony. They became increasingly frightened by the tone and questions Alexander were asking them, as they noted that he was extremely fixated by their shoes, what was in their bag, and their camera. So maybe they thought he was going to rob them, or... Yeah. He was clearly looking at their gear. Well, he's probably very suspicious of the two of them. Yeah. You know, they they felt the same way back. Yeah. So later, when speaking to police about this encounter, Rose said, quote, I thought something was wrong. He gave me a bad feeling. It was his eyes. I can't explain why. End Mm. quote. So he apparently had shown the couple a piece of paper, which said, he said, proved that he worked for the university. 
But Rose, after he left, quickly called 999 after the encounter and spoke mm-hmm. to police. She said, quote, I was crying and shaking at this point, afraid he would turn violent and touch me. Mm. Um, Alexander even followed the pair into Pret a Manager. It's like the name of a store. Uh, I guess it's like a business mm-hmm. casual kind of st- mm-hmm. uh, shop before leaving. And again, the reason I'm mentioning every single encounter, I really want to drive the point home that this guy had so many people he <laughs> like, encountered yeah. him and like, he could have... People really didn't seem to care, or they were too scared to try to think, maybe this guy needs help. Mm -hmm. Alexander recounts this part of his day. Quote, I walked up through town. This is a hazy patch. I remember I found another house. It was just by chance, a hunch. I was meant to find that house because it was linked. There was abuse happening there. A horse called Sugar. Tate and Lyle smile. They used to make the chimps grin. See, it all links with torture, pedophiles, and bestiality. Kind of out there with those words, right? Mm-hmm. Doesn't make a lot of sense, at least to us. So less than three hours later, Alexander had been wandering around and had found himself in the St. Thomas area of the city. This was only about two miles away from Anthony Payne's house. Okay. And this is where twin brothers Dick and Roger Carter reside. Okay. Now, Alexander grabbed a spade from the garden, which is like a, one of those like tiny shovels that you use yeah, to dig. handheld shovel. Yeah. And proceeded to enter the residence. Content warning. While inside, Alexander beat both men to death with the shovel. His statement about these murders is as follows. Quote, There was something about this house and the state of derelict it was in. He used that word again. Hmm. I, I just thought that was interesting. Me too. Quote, I, yeah. Quote, I saw it and thought there could be a cellar, basement, or coal bunker where you could have someone without anyone finding out. Hmm. I started off thinking there could be a high chance the girl was in that house. That's when I realized I needed to go in and rescue her. I went inside and saw the two men. At first, I didn't say anything. I just went outside into the garden, looked around, and picked up a garden spade before going back inside. You know the rest. He followed with, quote, I know saying it just now doesn't make sense, but at the time, I was convinced I knew she was there. I can see it's just completely deranged. Anyway, I was convinced that they had kept someone and her life was in danger, and that's when I hit them with a spade. I went upstairs and went through all the rooms into the garden. I thought the police would come after I had left and they would search it. I thought they would let people know I was working for them. I thought they would let people know because I was saving the girl from torture. I was working for the police. End quote. Wow. So he's really trying to drive the point home of, I really truly thought I was helping them and doing, you know their work. Well, and he had said at Mr. Payne's house that he felt like the police were following him, that Mm -hmm. he was like, oh, I'm just going to run in like a hero and just, you know, help this girl and they're going to back me up because he's clearly doing something to her. Yeah. After the killings of the twins, Alexander walked up Cowick Hill, where he was spotted by multiple people and even walked up some driveways during his stroll. He mentioned that he stopped to stroke some horses, which, again, he said he did in his stressful times. Remember, he said that he might visit his mom. He was thinking about visiting his mom at the horse, which I think was really sweet. Like, he pets some horses. He was noted as visiting three different pubs, Twisted Oak, the Huntsman Inn, and the Poachers in the nearby city of Ide, before retracting his steps and heading back into the middle of the city. Mm -hmm. He was seen in several different pubs around town as well, two being the Hole in the Wall and the Standoff. I just thought the Hole in the Wall was a cool name. (laughs) Um, He spent the night in the ruins of the Exeter Castle, where he he himself claimed to be sleeping in a, quote, bear pit, 
where he could see the ghosts of the bears that had been killed in the past and were now haunting the place. Oh my gosh. I know. He loves animals so much. Just so many things going through his mind. He also claimed to have been bitten by a snake during this time, but that was never um, confirmed. Mm -hmm. It's not clear whether he slept or not, but the next time somebody encountered him, it was 5 a.m., and he was not done with his violent streak. Oh, no. That's where we're going to stop. No! uh, (laughs) What? Yep. Next, in part two, we're going to talk about the end of his violent streak, of course, his capture and trial and all that, and that's going to be a doozy. There's a lot of information about that, so... At, in, in lieu of having a three-hour-long episode, we're going to do a two-parter. So, yeah. I mean, of course, like, my heart goes out to the victims, you know, but it's like, oh, my gosh, this this poor guy. Yeah, it's like, almost as if he's, like, a victim of his disorder. Yeah. You know? It's so, it's really heartbreaking. It's so sad. And, and especially to, to all listen. all those people. Yeah, and especially to listen to his account of it. And, again, like I said, he's clearly an animal lover. He clearly has a lot of empathy and compassion he thinks he's doing the right thing. Yeah. And that's all he wants to do is do the right thing. Yeah. It's really, it's a really big bummer of a case and we'll see how it, how it pans out, mm-hmm. but it's one of those where you're like, God, like nobody should, nobody had to die in that situation. Nobody should have even been hurt. Like mm-hmm. even John Ellis, you know, like he had so many chances to get help. Mm-hmm. Even the, especially like the first, when his mom called and was like, I know my son, he is very clearly mentally mm-hmm. ill. Like do not release him or at least put him in a psychiatric ward or something, yeah. you know, like, and this is 2019. It's not like this is the thirties where you can't always, always say that, yeah. like, you know, I thought we had progressed enough in the mental health field and it seems as if they did with that mental health act, but I guess not enough to where, I mean, unless someone does something like this, they're not considered mentally ill. I appreciate the law in that, in, in that case, but at the same time, you still need people that are active members of the mental health community to step up and say something Mm -hmm. and do something about it. If you just have people that, don't really care then what use is the law yeah exactly all right well we will see you guys for part two next time (laughs) and in the meantime you can follow us on instagram at diagnosing a killer at twitter at (laughs) killer diagnosis um you can email us uh diagnosing a killer at gmail.com and if you want to donate to the patreon it is patreon.com slash diagnosing a killer anything else no i think that's it i think i got them all Yeah. I only misspoke once. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. All right. Love you. Bye. Bye.